Are you normally glad or mad? Our text this morning is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you'd open your word to us. We pray that you'd make us wise according to your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see its mysteries and its wonders and to rejoice in them, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On a flight back to the United States from Dubai, I had a cute little boy sitting in front of me. He was cute until he started putting his hands on my video screen, even though I told him to stop, and he kept trying to steal my laptop, and finally he spilled his entire bottle of juice onto my shoes and onto my socks. I got mad, but not as mad as the Nigerian woman who was sitting next to me. The little boy was pulling the same stuff with her, and she said, You are a terrible child. If you were in Nigeria, we would beat you. She got real mad. In the book of Acts, we'll learn there is more to life than getting mad. In fact, the disciples get glad, not mad. Get glad, not mad. Go and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're going to begin there in verse 1. Acts 11, beginning in verse 1. And it says there in verse 1, Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now remember last week, we see that Peter was called from Lydda to the city of Joppa, and there he raises Dorcas from the dead. And I told you last week that I believe that Dorcas actually represents the old bride, the dead bride of Israel, and then she's resurrected to new life, resurrected to new life and new ministry And the very next thing that's going to happen is now Peter's going to be called to the Gentile nations out of the city of Joppa, the city where Jonah went forth. And he goes to the household of Cornelius. Cornelius had sent for Peter in Joppa to come to Caesarea because they had both received visions. Now Cornelius isn't simply any Gentile. He's a very special kind of Gentile. He's a professional Roman officer. He is a centurion, and if you look at the text, it tells us that he was in the Italian cohort. Now, normally in a Roman legion, you had anywhere from six to ten cohorts. A cohort has about 800 legionnaires in it. And in each cohort, you would normally have about eight to ten centuries, and each century had a centurion leading it, about 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. Now, being from the Italian cohort, we know that the legion that was in Judea at that time was from Syria, but this is called the Italian cohort. I believe that they were the stormtroopers and the center of that particular legion. I think that Cornelius was actually the primary centurion of the entire legion. Now, what does this mean? It means that he's a professional Roman officer, a centurion from an oppressive race of overlords over Israel at this time. And notice, he's living in Caesarea. He lives in Caesar's city. This is a Gentile of Gentiles, and yet the word of God comes to him. When Peter preached the gospel to them, they believed and received the Holy Spirit. But some Jews got mad. Not because Peter had preached to them, but because he had received the word and didn't get circumcised, and then Peter ate with them. What was this all about? Where had this been drawn from? Where was this concept of not eating together with Gentiles? Well, I believe it probably comes from the Passover principle. You may not know this, but a Gentile can participate in all the feasts of Israel. 
He can participate in all the sacrifices of Israel. Israel was supposed to be an open society, drawing the nations in to come and learn about and believe in the true God, Yahweh. But there's one feast that Gentiles can't take of, and that's the Passover. In Exodus 12, 48, it says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He may be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And remember, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. So I can see where you have these Jewish Christians in the first century, and some Gentiles are starting to come in, but they're not circumcised. They're not Jewish in that way. Can they come and feast with us? Are we allowed to be eating meals with them? Well, maybe you come to the conclusion that they can't because of the principle of the Passover. Going on to verse 7, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So the sheet comes down from heaven. And it's filled with all these unclean animals, filled with animals that a Jew is not supposed to eat. And yet this voice says, rise and eat. Peter, like the circumcision party, believed that the categories of clean and unclean were unchangeable categories. But the voice of the Lord says, rise and eat. What's this all about? Going on to verse 8. But I said, by no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter is saying, how is this even possible, Lord? Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. But Peter forgot the words of Jesus. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus dealt with this very subject in the Gospels. Prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus spoke of this idea of clean and unclean foods. Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark puts this little parenthetical statement in there. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus was already talking about things that were unclean in the Old Testament becoming clean. Why? Because Jesus is the kingdom arrived. Jesus is the new covenant coming in and transforming everything. And the fact of the matter is it wasn't about food. It wasn't about unclean and clean foods. In fact, I'll say this, the symbolic elements of the Old Testament, they're not simply about the thing themselves, but rather they're about bigger issues, about the world being saved, about people. Going on to verse 9. So the sheet comes down, filled with unclean foods. A voice comes from heaven, rise and eat. And then when we get to verse 9, it says, The voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. This happened three times. And was all drawn up again into heaven. Three times. And friends, what does three represent? Kids, what does three represent in the Bible? Do you remember? Resurrection. Resurrection. In fact, I submit 
that when you see the threes all over the Bible, by and large, they're all pointing forward to three days in a tomb for Jesus and rising on the third day. It's about death and resurrection, death and resurrection. Three times the sheet comes down, three times it's taking up. Death and resurrection, something has died, something's been resurrected. What died and got resurrected? The law did. Friends, the law didn't simply die. The law didn't simply go away, but rather the law died and was brought back to life. It was resurrected, it was transformed, it was transmogrified, and continues in its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law resurrected, and God has made in Christ that which was unclean, now clean. Going on to verse 11. But it gets deeper than that. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. Now, just in case Peter doesn't get the impact of this, because he's got a thick skull. I've got a thick skull. How about you? I'm always running over things and not seeing the reality of them. But, I mean, if you look at the story, if you think I'm, I'm speaking far-fetched here about these threes, look what happens. She comes down three times, pull back up three times, rise and eat, Peter. He's wondering, could this be true? Should I actually be thinking about these categories of clean and unclean being fulfilled in Christ? Something new's arrived, and at that very moment, three men are standing at the door. Just in case Peter misses the threes, there's three men knocking at the door, coming from Caesarea. Peter is Mr. Three. Think about it for a minute. Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Matthew 26, 75 says, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. He would have looked back on that and thought about how I denied the Lord three times, and then right after that, Jesus goes into the tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rises from the dead. And then Jesus, after rising from the dead, walking the earth, coming and going amongst his disciples for 40 days and 40 nights before his ascension, and he's holding Peter at arm's length on purpose, driving home the message of his denial, causing him to think about things, including threes. And what happens? Jesus comes to him in John 21, and he gives him three questions that end in three restoration charges. John 21, 17 is the culmination of this. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Jesus charged him three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, three, three, three. So now when the Gentiles come knocking, Peter has to know, something going on here. Got threes going. Something's dying. Something's being resurrected. Something's being transformed. Something new is breaking in. These people come from Caesarea, from the house of Cornelius. Verse 12, he goes on, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Who were these six brothers? Isn't that kind of weird? Now, I think you only have two options here, and actually, they all, they all end up at the same place. Either the three men that came from the Gentile Cornelius' house then is represented going back over to the city of Caesarea and then coming to Jerusalem. So you've got those three and maybe three men that would be coming with Peter. So you've got basically three Jews and three Gentiles. Or you've got six Jews, 
coming with Peter, but they still represent, I think, three Jews and three Gentiles, threes again, threes all over the place. The Holy Spirit spurred Peter on, and many witnesses went from Joppa, and they presented themselves in Jerusalem, verse 13. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now both Peter, the Jew, and Cornelius, the Gentile, had received messages from God. Cornelius was confident of this message from God because we're told in Acts 10.24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now I want to take a slight detour here, friends. Notice this. He will declare to you a message, this is from God, a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The Bible, unlike modern America, assumes the faith is given in community and not on an individual level. See, we think in America, everybody's got to make their own little individual decisions. I've heard Christians' parents say, well, I don't want to push the Christian faith too hard on my kids. I want them to come to their own decisions. But friends, the world doesn't think like that. The ancient world never thought like that. In fact, to this day, the vast majority of the world doesn't think like we do in modern America. We assume everybody else does. But most of the world thinks like this. Dad became a Christian. Well, the whole family's Christian now. We're all going to become Christians. We're following the head. The tribal chief became a Christian. All right, we're all going down to the river to get baptized. The king became a Christian. Our kingdom is now going to become Christian. That's how the vast majority of the world has always thought. And so you've got, you will be saved, you and all your household, because God loves to work in groups of people. God loves to save a person and a family and then save them all. God loves to come to a nation and convert a leader and through that person convert the entire nation. God loves bringing people into community as communities. Going on to verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way? So what happened at the household of Cornelius? Pentecost happened again. The Holy Spirit poured down and the people began to speak in tongues. Now they weren't just simply babbling. They were speaking in known languages. Remember at Pentecost, we've got all these Jews from all over the world some of them so far flung that they've actually lost the mother tongue of Hebrew and they speak the languages of those nations even better. And they come to Jerusalem and there's these people in the upper room who don't speak those languages, spirits poured out on them, and they preach the word of God in those known languages. You can see why that would have been important in the first century, can't you? You've got Jews like this. Are the Gentiles, if they come in, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jews? The Spirit's being poured out on these nations. The Spirit's being poured out upon these people. Is Jesus the Messiah? And then the Spirit's poured out and gives a testimony that the new covenant has come. You can see how the same thing needed to happen when the Gentiles are being brought in. And by the way, which is why I don't think you see this phenomenon anymore. We don't question when somebody's converted anymore. If a bunch of people over in Kyle got converted, we wouldn't go, I I don't know about that, and then we need some magnificent sign from heaven. The Spirit's been moving, 
through the world for 2,000 years bringing testimony, starting off with miracles and continuing with the little miracles of salvation day by day. And so I believe this is a peculiar thing that happened in the first century. And what happened? Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The Spirit of God is poured out and salvation is coming to the nations. Now Peter could have gotten mad. Paul felt something akin to this since he longed for his fellow Jews to come and believe in Messiah. But Peter got glad because God, through Jesus, was doing what he'd promised all along, and that is to save the world, to save the world. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They generally, but also those who got mad about Peter eating with Gentiles, fell silent. And then everyone got glad because God is finally going forth and saving the world. Can I hear an amen to that? But how about you? How about you? Do you get mad when you hear about the gospel breaking out like crazy in Iran? Do you say, why not here? Lord, why not in the United States? Do you get mad when you hear about Calvinist Christians in Central Asia? Is your first reaction Well, I wonder how Reformed and confessional they really are. Do you get mad when you hear about massive numbers of Pentecostal Christians in Africa and you say, well, they're probably all fake heretics? Well, guess what? God is about something huge through Jesus, and he's big enough to sort all these things out. So I want to say to you this morning, get glad, not mad. When the Antique Roadshow rolled through St. Paul, Minnesota, A man brought a pocket watch handed down to him by his great-grandfather that he thought was worth about $6,000. It turned out to be a highly collectible 1914 Patek Philippe that sold at auction for $1.5 million. Do you get glad when you see someone getting blessed like that? Or do you, like me, have a little voice deep inside that says, why can't that be me? Maybe a little longing That he'd be the guy who bought an antique watch at an auction for $2,000 only to discover it was made for Dollar General in China and is worth $3.47. Well, this morning we've seen in the book of Acts that rejoicing over God's blessing of others, even far away others, is the proper posture for the Christian. So get glad, not mad. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us, extended to us, that we might be saved, that we might be in your kingdom. We hear primarily of the Gentiles you brought in by your gracious plan of the ages. Help us never to be puffed up in these things, and help us always to be glad and to look for where your hand is moving. We pray that you'd bless us even this week to carry out this gladness and joy into our community around us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.